Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast, conversations with experts from around the globe about the discovery and creation of the future of higher education and lifelong learning. I am Jose Pepe Camilla, director of Tech Labs, an educational innovation unit of Tecnológico de Monterrey. Over the past three decades, I have been working on innovative pedagogies and learning technologies. I hope this EduTrends podcast will help us understand the future of learning. I recently visited MIT to meet with a longtime friend, Philip Schmidt. He is the Director of Learning Innovation at the MIT Media Lab, where he leads the Media Lab Learning Initiative, teaches courses, and conducts research on learning communities. In the future, we envision more agency on the learner and less dependency on a formal teacher. The work of Philip is clearly pointing to that future. We talk about the power of open communities and the impact of peer-to-peer -peer universities. I hope you find our talk interesting. So it's great to be here, uh, Philip, in uh, uh, MIT Media Lab with you. Yeah, great for you to visit. Uh, and um, uh, we've known ourselves for how long? Uh, maybe 10 years? More than 10 years, I would say. More than 10 years. Did we first meet at the Open Education meeting in Utah? Okay. Or at the Open Course meeting in Santander? Uh, I think it was in Utah. Okay. Uh, in Utah, yes. Uh, so we, since then, uh, um, you've been doing lots of stuff in the Open Resources community. Yeah, more, I would say more open learning, open, uh, learning. open communities. Um, I was never so excited about the open resources alone. Uh, both, I think the name was very confusing, open educational resources, OER. Mm -hmm. And then also, um, I always thought that the, if you're interested in learning and education, the content in a way is the, the least interesting part. It's like you need content, of course, but more interesting is people working on projects together, getting recognition for your learning. Like those are the interesting things for me. The content was always just, um, I guess, a necessary enabler of, of those other things to happen. Um, but I have, I mean, I have spent a lot of time working on content for someone who's more interested in things, not content. Like I, we you know when we were working on open courseware together, Um, I think the significance of open courseware for me was I was actually working more on open source software communities before. So how do people get together and uh, collaborate, even though they don't know each other in person, they don't work for each other, they don't get paid necessarily. Some people, of course, get paid, but and they, they form around some shared interest and they're able to build very sophisticated Um, projects with lots of people in lots of countries and they can coordinate them. It's like all the things that traditionally we would say a firm is really good at because you hire people, you direct the work. All of a sudden this other model emerged that was not a form. It was much more bottom up. Everyone could join or leave and it was able to produce really high quality work. For example, uh, Linux, the operating system or Apache or you know, most of the software that runs the internet today was built by open source communities. So I was much more interested in open source communities. And then when open courseware happened, um, I realized that the, the core ideas within those communities could be applied to other areas. And uh, quite frankly, the education community was a much friendlier community than the software community. <laughs> when, if you're, It's good to know. No, it's true. I remember, uh, do you remember the UNESCO OER mailing list? Uh -huh. uh, Susan D'Antoni um, started this mailing list for people working on open education, education around the world. And that was one of the first groups that I communicated with. And I was amazed by when I communicate on the open source software mailing lists, it's very confrontational. 
it's about you know, like you're wrong, you're right, you're okay. an idiot. Yeah, people are calling each other names. Um, flame wars. And- flame wars, arguments. And I, I get on this other mailing list and everyone is so polite and oh, it's like so friendly and so friendly and so helpful. And when they disagree, they like they, there's like three paragraphs where they first apologize and then they, there's like a very small disagreement. And I thought uh, this is a much better community to be a member of than than those crazy you know guys over there. So that's how I got into open courseware. And um, I was living in Cape Town at the time. And I, you know, Access to education is a much bigger issue in South Africa than it is in Germany or where I grew up or the U.S. And um, so I became very interested in both uh, having access to the content, but also what I saw was kind of a few elite universities in America um, publishing their content with this assumption, you know, maybe not even by MIT, but I think the, the rest of the world assumed that, oh, this is perfect. Now MIT can teach everyone. So all those people in Africa that need education, they can now get MIT's content. And I thought that was um, uh, incomplete or maybe wrong, a wrong way of thinking about this. Like the way I thought about open was about participation. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was very important that like African scholars produce also producing content. content. I, I remember that in the, in the founding board of Open Course, where we have those discussions on It's not only to publish some content, so, but also to make sure that uh, the learner is taken into account somehow. No, it's, it's not enough to say this is the best content and I publish this. Is how you make sure that the person that is in the other side participates, constructs uh, his own knowledge. Yeah, and I, I remember one. So I ran these projects at the University of the Western Cape, which is the Um, in Cape Town, there's a few universities, and University of the Western Cape is the poor university that is predominant, or at the time was predominantly um, non-white students. Uh, it also had a really proud history. So a lot of the ANC, the, the anti-apartheid movement, when they came back from exile, they came to UWC, became, got an appointment there. And then from there went into the Mandela administration as ministers. And so UWC had been the first university in South Africa to, to declare itself non-racial, which was during apartheid. So they broke the law essentially, um, but it was a little bit outside of the city. It was definitely poorer students, didn't have a lot of resources. Um, and so I ran a few projects there, which I really enjoyed, which did exactly what you just described. One um, is we involved the students in actually creating the content. So they would have little recorders, kind of like this setup, and they would go to their classes. They would talk to their lecturers and they would say, can we record the content because we want to share it with the other people in the class. They got the lecturers to agree. And then they recorded the lectures, they collected the materials, they shared their notes, and they built this internal knowledge sharing community that then went beyond the content. They would say, okay, you know, uh, there were some nursing students, you know, next week we're going to go do our Um, you know, field trials, make sure you get your vaccinations because it's important for the field trial. So it became this kind of, you know, knowledge sharing community. And in another class, uh, we were teaching, uh, essentially learning with technology or, you know, kind of the what's happening with digital technology that students should be aware of. And one of the sessions I taught um, about Wikipedia. And the only activity was you have to edit a Wikipedia article And the goal is that your edit is still there one week later. And so... It's not got down by the... Uh, exactly. By the, by the rope, by the bots, or, or by the other editors. By the or, editors or whatever. And so people... But It's so a quality article. People had to think about, okay, well, first of all, who writes Wikipedia? Who edits Wikipedia? Because this, there's this perception, it's low quality, right? Uh-huh. And what you very quickly discover, if you add something that's incorrect, it's immediately removed, right? mm-hmm. either by bots or by other people. And um, so they learned a lot about how these open communities participated. But then there was one student, she corrected an article about a jazz musician from Cape Town because she knew that he had been born in a city that was called Athlone which the article said was Cape Town. And technically it was not Cape Town. It's, it's a suburb of Cape Town, but it's its own city. And she was a big fan. So she corrected the article 
and the edit stayed in the Wikipedia article for the for the week. Actually, stayed much much longer. But the the sense of uh, ownership or kind of agency that this woman had that I could see, right? Like she, first of all, using this technology, participating in this global community as someone from Cape Town in an under-resourced uh, university and her voice remained there. It was just such an amazing moment that like, really stayed with me. And so for me, this sense of participation is much more important than like getting access to cheap textbooks. Just a, a funny anecdote. We have a, a group of faculty members that do something similar. Uh, some of them are English um, as a foreign language teachers of our students. Uh, and so they, uh, they ask their students, go to the Wikipedia and look for, I don't know, enchilada or quesadilla or whatever. And they find out that enchilada is a Taco Bell delicacy or something like that. They say, no, that's not true. So he challenged them to look for Mexican stuff uh, also in the Wikipedia, uh, not only food. The, that is not accurate, uh, so that uh, it becomes there, you know, really motivated uh, to look at what are the rules, uh, yeah. how to change that, and how to correct that for some kind of pride and all that. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is to me is that it's actually more important to correct the English Wikipedia than it would be to correct the Spanish Wikipedia or the Mac. I mean, I guess, I mean, language Spanish, not uh, national. So, for example, uh, in, um, well, in South Africa, English is one of the national languages, but in the Middle East, people are much more concerned about the English Wikipedia having incorrect data and content than their own Wikipedia in a way, because the English Wikipedia is so widely used by everyone in the world. And also it's so ignorant sometimes, right? Because it's predominantly written by people. It can be also replicating some stereotypes, for instance. Exactly, exactly. And so it's interesting that like, as a global community, so, okay, fine, we decide we're going to use one language predominantly. In this case, it'll be English. But we all, like, we're like, you know, we're, there's this tension around, well, who is the expert, right? Like, if this is my country, I should be writing about this, these things. But these other people far away have already written the whole article. And so those, those things I find super interesting. And that, that only happens to these open community, or not only, but the open communities have really, I feel like, started that, and I don't see the same sense of connection in social media today, for example. Um, I, don't, I don't know what your take is, but and maybe I'm a grumpy old, old guy now. Um, <laughs> but in social media, I, I have to really search for the meaningful personal connections that are surprising to me. I, I can communicate with people I already know. That's, that works really well. But like entering an open community and then you know, a, a sen coming in with a sense of respect and shared interest and helping. I don't encounter a lot of that in social media these days. And I feel like in the early days of open source and open course and open communities, that was much more the norm. Like you would constantly meet new people online that were extremely open and helpful and sharing and working together. It was kind of a more uh, welcoming space in a way. And, and maybe I'm wrong. You know, when you look back, you only remember the good things but I, th I think there were flame wars also in the groups like uh, alta dot uh, whatever you know that's the usenet yeah yeah usenet yeah, uh, exactly but i i agree with you that uh, there was this uh, dream that uh, the internet will make us closer and more diverse and and it's not necessarily what is happening uh, i think is get uh, the algorithms like uh, in facebook or whatever are putting us in contact with people that are more like us instead of people are more diverse and so we think sometimes that our truth is the only truth uh, and uh, maybe that's one of the reasons that uh, people are getting so polarized uh, these times everywhere yeah yeah i i would agree in a, in a way when we were bad at internet like we couldn't you know like it was really hard to find things it was really messy all these crazy people were posting things it was you were forced to engage much more. Whereas now is where we've become extremely good at searching and filtering and curating content. It's almost like we don't get to see, we don't get to see the outside of our bubble anymore. Right? Like you only see things that are similar to you that, that or they're, they're even designed to in, like make you angry about certain things that the, the algorithm knows you're gonna get angry about because it turns out anger is a more um, engages sentiment. Engages then. more and makes you share more than 
like you know being surprised or encountering something new mm-hmm. yeah so it's uh it's yeah it's a little bit um too bad but also it's kind of amazing how the world has changed like if i mean i i actually wanted to become a filmmaker at one point that was my my dream and i discovered the internet the web uh, in my university and it completely changed my trajectory because the this idea of this global network and people connecting was just so compelling and um yeah it is amazing to see, you know my dad calls me on on facetime uh and i can talk to him and i can see him and i can um when we leave here we will order you know on a tiny device we'll press a button and a car will appear driven by you know someone who does this as a job and then drop us somewhere else it's like it's amazing i mean the world but uh, the, the change is also the pace of change i think can be a little bit disorienting sometimes right what well, tell me uh, i think i i asked you this uh, before what took you to from germany to uh, cape town uh, um <laughs> it's too personal maybe oh, no, yeah. no, okay you know it's all it's usually it's either work or it's a person so okay. in this case it was originally a person okay um and i and i guess the other thing is i was um you know i'd gotten into it and technology through through the internet and there was a lot of opportunities for people with tech skills at the time you know nobody like there were there were really not many computer software developers and engineers at the time and, um so i was kind of going into the starting having my first jobs and i wasn't so interested i very quickly discovered that i wasn't so interested in a traditional industry job and that i was more interested in how can you use these technologies for kind of more social benefits and um when i had the opportunity then to move to cape town i i was i was looking for jobs that would connect those two and i found a really incredible job with an organization called bridges.org that doesn't exist anymore but um they wrote before i came they wrote one of the first reports on the global digital divide mm-hmm. and they developed a methodology uh, and that was while i was there on how to design technology for social change and that I still think it was called real access real impact I still think is one of the more useful frameworks that people have developed and uh, we and everyone continues to disregard basically building technology for you know the poor um but um so the person was the like the was the reason why I moved there but then it happened to coincide with this personal interest of com- connecting my tech skills with a more social purpose and I found a really mm-hmm. interesting job and you know a fertile environment for your uh, fertile environment yes um and then i got a dog and uh, once you have a dog you can't leave and so <laughs> i got to keep the dog when we you know broke up so i the dog and me stayed in cape town great it, it was at that time also that you were involved in the foundation of peer to peer university so i started peer to peer university living in cape town uh, originally i worked for bridges then i did some time working with the university of the western cape and then through the open courseware um uh work i that was basically the idea there's all this content now how can you bring together people that would use the content in a completely non-formal way so outside of institutions and um i started talking about this idea with neeru paharia who was uh, at the early she, i think she was the first executive director of creative commons when it was still based out of stanford and um she was just an interesting thinker in that space and neeru and i met at some conferences and we started talking about these ideas and um you know the early days you stay up very late you, you know maybe you drink a lot as well but you you're talking about all these dreams that you have and all and it was like one of those conversations and then we would run into each other at conferences and then one conference i remember she actually came up with the term peer to peer university mm-hmm. and somehow and one of the things i learned is through that is like branding is super important because once you have a name it kind of it can capture the imagination in a way that a concept cannot and so when we met at this conference where she came and we were sharing ideas and she she had found this name i knew we we were going to have to do this thing now and so um nero myself stian hackleff um delia brown and joel thierston um Joel actually joined a little bit later but the the four of us were all at this conference 
And we basically spent the whole time at the conference just thinking about, okay, what is this going to look like? And um, I was living in Cape Town. We were all living on different continents, actually. Uh, Delia in Australia, Neuron in the US, Stian, I think, in Norway. Uh, and mm. yeah, and so we would organize these calls and we would start you know, trying this out ourselves. Like, where do we find the materials? We tried to learn psychology. And, um, that that then the I, the Shuttleworth Fellowship came and like really gave us the resources that we needed to make it happen. Um, so uh, peer to peer university, which the name by the way embraces this idea of uh, uh, people producing stuff, not only consuming because it's from one person to another. It, it's not a, uni a granting degree university or a credit degree university. It's more a place where it's more free and you can learn. There are objectives or uh, there's some assessment or not. Uh, I, I think there are even two phases of peer-to-peer. -peer where you can, you can talk yeah. about maybe. Um, I would say the, the main difference was the first phase was entirely online and the second phase is almost entirely offline. Mm -hmm. um, so the only thing that's still online is the content. Um, but the people, originally, the people would meet in small groups online, in usually, you know, Skype calls or something. They would find a topic that they were interested in. Usually one person would take the lead and maybe start looking around for some curriculum or some materials. But then as a group, they would design their own course and then run through the course. And usually most of those courses had some kind of a project at the end. Um, and... Uh, Yeah, we, I mean, we had people from all over the world come together. Often they um, took really interesting materials from universities, from OpenCourseWare, combined it with other things, um, had really fascinating uh, conversations and connections. And that sense of, um, one, being able to do this without the professor was very powerful. And then, two, doing it with this group of people that you didn't know before and you made, you know, you made really great friends in the process. And so... One of the challenges was if you do this only online, and this was starting in 2008, so it's a long time ago, um, the people who were online were in some way privileged. Um, maybe they didn't have an elite university degree, maybe they didn't have a ton of money, but they had the ability to communicate very well in English generally. Um, they had the time and the money to spend online, they had computers, um, they had enough education that they were able to organize themselves and. Um, and they didn't, they were privileged in a way that they didn't need a degree, right? So they could survive mm -hmm. or get mm -hmm. jobs or be successful without degrees. Often they already had degrees or they were getting degrees somewhere else. Um, so it was a little bit frustrating that we, we were kind of creating this new model for education, but it was serving a somewhat privileged mm -hmm. audience. And, when, and so we, we ran into a crisis when the MOOCs emerged because the at least the perception was that you wouldn't need peer-to-peer -peer university anymore. Like you don't have to learn with a bunch of amateurs online if you can learn from the best professors in the world. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, like with OpenCourseWare, we're all going to learn from MIT and Harvard now. Yes, um, and, and, and also uh, MOOCs like Coursera, edX or whatever, uh, originally the idea was that it was uh, for people that were not able to have access to education. And in fact, when you look at the statistics, Uh, a big part of the people that are accessing those courses are people that have already some, some education, some university education or even advanced degrees. Exactly. So they, it took them like another four or five years to realize that, that what we had realized already, that the people who are online who are participating are privileged. The, the bad thing, turned, which turned out to be a good thing, was that our funders disappeared because they said, well, we don't have to fund a small amateur group anymore. We can now either give money to the MOOCs or actually we don't have to give money because the MOOCs you know, had venture capital and all this money. So um, we ran into this crisis where we were deciding, okay, does it make sense? Should we just close the you know, project? And I had met someone from a public library at some conferences. And I spoke to her, we, we were always having great conversations about learning communities, but we never really found a thing to work on. And so when we, when we found ourselves in this moment of crisis, I said, okay. In Spanish, we say um, necessity is the mother of invention. Perfect, that's exactly what happened. So we were, you know, we were like, okay, either we're gonna close or we have to go back to our original goal, which is really increase opportunities for education. 
And it turns out that the only way we could do this was to, to partner with an institution that was face-to-face. -face. And the public library at the same time was trying to figure out what to do about online learning because they knew digital was coming and people were questioning, why do we need libraries? Everything is going to be online, which is, is kind of a crazy assumption actually, but, but initially might seem reasonable. But so they were struggling to justify their existence. And so it was just kind of this perfect combination where this gave them the ability to be relevant in the digital space. And it gave us access to a community of learners that we would never be able to reach otherwise. And the model, it turns out the model of peer-to-peer -peer learning translated really well. And um, also we didn't invent the model, right? Like the, there, there are learning circles in Sweden and lots of other countries for hundreds of years. Um, but, you know, just having this kind of methodology where it's very easy for the public library to advertise a course, select some materials from the open courseware or other open resources, and then people come together in the physical space and they get some handouts for like how to structure their interaction. Turns out that works really well. People are really good at learning with each other um, when they're self-motivated and they kind of get that sense of ownership of the process. It, it really uh, creates a totally different learning environment. Um, so the values stayed exactly the same, even though it looks totally different now. And we're doing really well now. So yeah, the, 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 the crisis led us into a much better uh, direction. And are you serving uh, a different kind of uh, uh, public now or yeah. is... Uh, no, no. Uh, yeah, no, no, totally different. So um, the, the initial courses were, we were working with Chicago Public Library. And I remember like, the very first iteration, so before this had been tested, we had some people participating who were homeless, who were, yeah. didn't have a job, who didn't have a college degree, um, you know, really struggling. Um, you know, this sounds stupid, but the, when I saw the photos, uh, the faces were not white and young. You know, it, it was all different colors and different ages. And um, the sense of uh, accomplishment that I think the participants had was totally different from the online. So it's a completely different audience. Much, it, it, the responsibility to serve them is much, becomes much more higher stakes, right? Like now you are, if, if you work with a bunch of geeks online who don't need degrees, you, it doesn't matter if things don't work. Now you feel a bigger sense of responsibility um, because the, for these learners, maybe this is a more important um, aspect of their education. But yeah, so very different audience. We still also get people who are more, I would say, like um, uh, gentlemen or gentlewoman learners, you know, people who learn for fun and they're maybe retired or they have a few degrees. And, um, but that's the minority now. Um, the majority is people who are trying to get ahead in life, get a better job or, um, you know, improve their skills. Yeah, why do you think that um, for this kind of uh, public, this kind of learners, face-to-face -face is better than online. Uh, because I don't think it's a matter of uh, access to technology right now. I'm not sure. Uh, um, I think there should be other factors. Actually, uh, it's a couple of things. And, and sadly, um, I think this in many ways is less the case in, um, in, in countries like South Africa, or I don't want to make assumptions about Mexico, but um, Sadly, in the U.S., there is actually a large part of the population that does not have reliable access to broadband internet. Okay. And um, the public library is the number one space where, that, or where, the, where those people go to access the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're using the internet there to look for jobs, to search for information. Health information is huge. Um, so, so there is the access thing through the okay. library that's important. Um, I think the other piece is um, learning to be a good learner takes some time, right? And so if you go through a great uh, school experience or a great university, you get very good at being a learner. And that involves a lot of skills around self-motivation, structuring your, your process, communication, digital communication, which if you haven't had a, a really solid education background, you may not have developed those skills. And those things are easier to do face to face. If you're sitting around a room, it's easier to pick up. You know, are we are people happy? Or you know, are we excited? Or um, make a connection with other people. And and then the the 
meeting once a week with a group of people is a huge motivator because you know, well, on Tuesday night, I'm going to be at the public library. And if I don't show up, you know, the other people know that I didn't come online. It's like, well, the webinar is on Tuesday night. You know, I'll watch the recording later. You know, I'll, it's like, I think it's much easier to, to not participate. So th this peer-to-peer um, um, -peer university is um, a pure form or what um, in education we call informal learning because it's non-structured, uh, it has no clear objectives, it's uh, driven by self-motivation. Uh, and I, I don't know if uh, you have some stories that you can share of uh, people that have had uh, success, uh, success stories of peer-to-peer uh, -peer university. Um, of the participants? Yes. Yeah, um, I can. And actually, but let me make one comment quickly. Um, in, you use the term informal. Uh, I've heard some people say they prefer the term non-formal. Um, but um, I was talking to someone just a couple of days ago that like all the things we're excited about start with none. Like, you know, like we're always negating something. And so I feel like we should turn it around and it should be like uh, beyond formal or super formal or, you know, like the others should be the, the, the negative ones. We, we should be the positive ones. You know, we're like, we're for something exciting. Um, anyway, that's an aside. But um, so, uh, well, just one example, there's a bunch of um, public libraries in uh, East Africa uh, that have run web development, basic web development courses very, very successfully. Mm -hmm. And um, they have actually created a bunch of businesses. So people taking those courses are now creating websites and getting paid to create the websites for the like businesses in their local communities. Um, so they, I mean, that's kind of the extreme end. You know, like you create your own business, you launch it, now you can make money based on this experience with peer-to-peer -peer university. Um, I think more common is um, a, a a more, I guess. The changes that I think help people get ahead are more a sense of confidence that you're able to complete an education um, program. A lot of people who participate in peer-to-peer -peer university have had very unsuccessful experiences in education. Right? They failed things, they dropped out of things, they couldn't complete their degree. So now they're completing a course and they, you know, that's like a sense of accomplishment. And then they're building skills of collaboration with other people, motivating themselves, accessing digital materials. So it's those kinds of things are going to serve them really well going forward. But it's not that that's going to be enough to get a great job or enter a, a formal degree. And so the piece that I think is still missing is, you know, those anecdotes from Africa, they shouldn't just be anecdotes. There should be more. But also, I think having a way from this experience into formal education would be extremely valuable for our participants. So let's say through peer-to-peer -peer university, you build up your confidence, some of the skills, maybe you improve your math or, or your writing, and then you enter a degree program at a community college or a local college, and you do maybe a two-year degree or maybe a four-year degree. If we can create that pathway and help people be more successful at that, I think that then we're really, um, then I would say we're really successful. Yeah, another possibility would be preparing yourself to take a test that will somehow certify that you have uh, the knowledge. Uh, sure, yeah. That there are, yeah. for instance, tests for high school or tests for, uh, you don't have to do high school, you have to do a test. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's another possibility. But um, we... You yeah. don't seem very excited. Well, I'm not so excited about tests in general. I, okay. I must admit, even though I understand that they're extremely important, but they're kind of an unnecessary evil. Um, but I think you're right. I should be more excited about them. And if it's a test that certifies your skills and that gives you a job, that's great. So mm -hmm. I think, no, yeah. Well, sometimes there are um, uh, some uh, for credit uh, degrees or whatever that you need in your life to show exactly. up in, you're, in, you're, some, in some places. No? You're 100% so right. It's um, uh, unnecessary. And what is evil? Is yeah. And this is evil. So um, was peer-to-peer uh, -peer university that took you to the United States? Um, um, indirectly, yeah. Um, 
not a too personal question, but there are probably some aspects of how I came to the U.S. that I don't necessarily want to disclose. But anyway, through the through the through the conversation, so I'd, I'd been, you know, as we had met in the context of MIT OpenCourseWare and then OpenCourseWare Consortium, I'd started spending more time at MIT and with people at MIT. And someone I had collaborated with for peer-to-peer university was Joey Ito, mm-hmm. who became the director of the Media Lab. And I had some conversations actually with a separate group at MIT about possibly doing some work together. And I felt ready to leave Cape Town. And I was a big fan of MIT. I thought the values here were, uh, you know, like they had, they had, there was a lot of open in the DNA here. They had created open source software. Richard Stallman was here, uh, open courseware. So I felt like the values here were very aligned with mine. And then, you know, MIT has this incredible reputation, which I think of as a, a platform. Like if you, the crazy thing is when you're sitting in Cape Town by yourself running peer-to-peer university and you say certain things about peer learning is going to change education, a bunch of people, crazy people like you, may listen to you, right? And, and you, you, you can build up an audience. If you say exactly the same things sitting at MIT, everyone will listen to you. And they're like, oh my God, MIT said peer-to-peer learning is going to change the way education works. You know, the, the, the smart people at MIT. So it was, you know, I knew this was a, an amazing opportunity. If I could find a way to, to bring my ideas and my work into this context, I would find lots of collaborators that mm-hmm. would be values aligned and, you know, the possibilities would, would, go, would grow. And so the conversations I had with the Media Lab were actually around, could peer-to-peer university become part of the Media Lab? And I was going to take this other job at, at MIT. And in the, in the conversations, I've, I really fell in love with the media lab and the people here. And I didn't enjoy the other conversations so much. So in the end, I decided that didn't work out. And Joey had become the director here. He invited me to come here as a director's fellow because he'd also seen me engage with the other people here. And it just kind of was a much better fit. So he made me a fellow in residence, which means he invited me to spend two years here, still running peer-to-peer university, but collaborating with people at the Media Lab. And so then I partnered with uh, Mitchell Resnick, who's a professor here, and we created this online course that was more, that looked more like the kind of learning experiences that we were interested in. Uh, Mitchell's background is, he's really one of the leaders in what he calls creative Learning. Lifelong learning kindergarten? Lifelong kindergarten, yeah. Okay. So his group is called Lifelong Kindergarten. He wrote kind of a framework he uses is called creative learning, but it builds on uh, constructivism or constructionism, which was Seymour Papert's uh, kind of uh, pedagogy. He was an early uh, faculty member here. He was Mitch's advisor. Mitch then became a faculty member here. And so Mitch brings this um, approach around creative learning projects, you know. Uh, tinkering. And then I had this approach of online and uh, peer-to-peer learning. And so we we kind of brought those things together. We ran an online course that turned out to be uh, very, very successful for educators called Learning Creative Learning. Um, and there were a few iterations and we built a bunch of tools to support it. And, like Half the things didn't work. It was a, really a lot of fun. And um, so through that, those, those projects, um, I discovered and the media lab I think discovered that there was a lot more that the media lab could be doing in digital learning and it made sense to position it as an what's called an initiative so I work across all of the research groups at the media lab I'm not a, a silo research group that goes deep like Mitch's mm-hmm. but I collaborate and support you know anyone who wants to work with us on, on learning okay but um, you, you will tell me a little bit more what it is to work with a media lab. But uh, you say that you didn't like testing, but uh, one of your first works in MIT Media Lab was blog search, which is related to certifying in the blockchain that uh, someone has learned. Uh, yes. Is there something that I'm missing? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, well, I never said that I was consistent in my... Uh, <laughs> no, so um, in my defense, uh, the the motivation behind block certs was, came out of the open badges work that I'd done many years before, okay. which was really an effort to 
to break the uh, monopoly of the formal credential. And right? mm. so you could only get a formal credential for the tests from the big universities. And many people, including myself, thought that there's a lot of learning that happens outside of those formal settings where people work on open source software projects. Or, yeah. And there's really no way to get recognition for those. Or it's very difficult to get recognition for those. And so we thought if we create a credential called an open badge, and you know, all kinds of institutions could issue those. So it could be a museum of science where you're doing a workshop, or it could be an open source community that gives badges for its best contributors. Or it could be a group of people giving badges to each other, you know, community-based. Then we would um, democratize the credential, essentially. Uh, didn't really work out that way. And, you know, as, as usual, you start with very with big dreams, idealistic dreams, and you reach, you know, if you're fortunate, you'll reach 70 or 80 percent of that. Um, so, so that, but that was my interest in the in the degree or in credentials. When block certs, uh, well, when when the um, Bitcoin kind of emerged, I became interested in Bitcoin and blockchains as a platform to bring the open badges because one of the one of the tricky things with open badges why I think they didn't take off in the way that we had hoped was one um, high stakes credentials were very rare so universities didn't really use them for for their diplomas they used them for soft skills and all kinds of you know smaller things and then secondly they were very hard to verify so you you know trusting them was a little bit tricky I think for employers and Blockchain seemed like a solution for the verification part. And also, I was just interested in this new technology. Like the best way, the media lab way of learning is if you're interested in something, you go and build something with it. That's really the best way. So we built a bunch of prototypes here. And they were specifically not for the big tests and the big, uh, but they were for things in our community. So we gave um, the first ones to the director's fellow. So I was a director's fellow. So I built something to award myself a, a credential. So always a good, good, good start. And then secondly, to the media of alums. Uh, so all the alums who came to the 30th anniversary, they got a credential from us. Um, and we even had physical ones as well. So the, this idea of challenge coins that signal membership in a community. Like I thought that was much more interesting as a as a community token rather than a um, like an identity card, right? Like the here's my driver's license. That, that was less interesting with the big authority issuing the driver's license. It was more interesting, like as a community, what what are the credentials that count within our community? What are the behaviors we recognize? So, so my approach into this was, um, I think, from a very different direction. But now, as we're working on this together, <coughs> again. I think we've ended up in a, in a space that's much more formal, much more uh, traditional, much more related to tests and, and skills. Um, but I'm, I think I'm quite happy about it because, um, and I, we talked about this a little bit before, but you know, if you're trying to get adoption for a very new and maybe challenging idea, um, sometimes having the traditional, the thing that people are used to um, translated to that new idea is a good way of making them comfortable. So what, what I mean is, if we're talking about these new digital credentials, they're going to they're going to represent all these diverse learning experiences, and some of them are even issued by communities. Then getting people to that point is is going to be hard. But if we say, hey, uh, your university diploma, right? Everyone knows what a university diploma is. You already get a piece of paper, or maybe even a PDF we're gonna give you a much better version of a digital diploma than exists today. Then everyone is gonna say, oh, it's, this is for our university diploma, this makes sense. And then from there, you know, 10 years down the line, I'm hoping that we'll end up in this place where lots of people are issuing credentials for lots of different things and you can stack them together and combine them and have a totally new education experience. And, um, so you're 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 starting from the other side of open budgets instead of starting from the uh, uh, non-degree yeah. things. Uh, you're starting from the degree things to yeah. go to later go to conquer the yeah. other part. And I mean, let's see if it, you know, like let's let's see if it works this time. Basically, um, that's it. That's the idea. And that and and that's also one of the things where it's like, okay, is this platform of MIT? Like, what's the most powerful way that we could use that? 
to drive innovation that's maybe very challenging or very novel. But because MIT and tech and you know other institutions are behind it, people are going to say, "Oh, this is a serious thing. Like we should be, you know, these guys must know what they're doing." Um, and so, well, let's, yeah, this is this is our my attempt to try it this way. And, and some weeks ago, um, uh, MIT and other eight universities, a total of nine, where Tecnomontreal is one of them, announced the creation of a group around digital credentials. Yeah. What's the difference between the, the rest of your work and this? Um, what's the difference or... Um, or is it an evolution or is... A... No, that's, so this is, for me, this is the logical evolution. Like the, the piece for the earlier prototypes that, um, I mean, we were trying to learn how the technology works. Uh, and then the, the, the point that that got me to was, um, I became very interested in the, so I realized that if you have a standard in this space, it could be a very powerful thing because in some way it recognizes or it represents your personal academic history. And especially now as higher education is changing and people are not just learning, you know, like they're not doing school college degree work, but they're doing school, a little bit of college, maybe a degree, some work, more college, some online courses, more work, you know, for, for the rest of your life having a way to tell that story becomes much more important. Gary Matkin uh, calls it uh, from UC Irving, the 60-year uh, university. Uh, the 60-year oh. curriculum. Curriculum, yeah, okay. Exactly, that's exactly the, the idea. So then being able to represent that experience becomes much more important, but also much more powerful. And so the governance question became really central to me. It's not really about the technology. Obviously, you want to build the best technology, but it's really about the governance of this technology um, that, that I became interested in. And so the fact that we were able to bring together eight, nine universities like this, who had all done work in this area, who have uh, expertise in-house with these technologies, who are able to issue credentials using this standard and who are willing to become stewards of a standard like this, right? So onboarding other people into this, uh, trying it out, and then also um, ma making sure that the interests of the learners and the institutions are represented first um, and then letting everything else follow. That, be that was extremely attractive to me. Like the fact that we would be, you know, are trying to or would be able to build this community of higher education institutions that are becoming stewards of a global standard for digital credentials. Uh, that's a, I mean, that's a great opportunity and really fun to be working on. It would be nice if uh, you can give a, a possible scenario for one kind of user or whatever in five years from now of how it will work so that uh, we get an idea of uh, yeah, I mean, it would work. I'll give, uh, I think maybe we should do this together, but maybe yes. we can find two. I think um, it will work for the very traditional normal learner where they go to a college, they get a degree, uh, and then they want to use this degree to get a job, and maybe they change jobs and they have to present it to a new employer. And then maybe a few years down the line, they want to use the degree, the first degree to apply for a master's degree somewhere. So every time they show that, credential to someone, that other person has to verify it. They have to go back to the institution that issued it. Sometimes they have to pay money. There's a lot of fraud. It's actually hard to verify some degrees, especially if you're interested in maybe studying abroad. So all those things are gonna be made much easier. You basically have a digital credential that you could store on your phone or in, your, in the cloud or you know, somewhere. And you, when you present it to someone, they can instantly verify that it hasn't been tempered with, that you are the person who should hold this uh, credential, and that the institution that issued it is really the institution that you think issued it. Um, so it just reduces a lot of friction, makes that uh, transfer easier, Im improves basically everyone's interaction with the credential. Then I think the much more interesting case is um, you know, imagine, and let's say a European student, because there's the regulatory framework there exists, um, it's just the implementation is tricky. In theory, in Europe, you could be taking any kind of credit from any kind of university 
and you could stack those things together and get a diploma from any of the European universities. In, the in practice, that's almost impossible to do. And so the technology, I think, will make it easier to start doing those things. And I think the practice will then follow. So I, I imagine, and this is totally what I would have loved to do when I was younger, that you do uh, a semester in Berlin, then you do a semester in Madrid. Uh, maybe you move to the Black Forest for a year because you, the big city is too expensive or you want to be you know, more quiet. You go to the... Uh, to take the Monterey. Yeah. So, you, well, so, so in my case, you go to the Black Forest, to a very small, uh, actually more, not a community college, but a, a kind of a, a second tier technical college. Then you go to the Tech de Monterey for one year in my case. And so, and then at the end of this, right, you have collected all these credentials from all these uh, uh, places. You then go to one place and they say, let me have a look at all this collection. And this one piece is missing. But if you do this additional course, then I will give you a bachelor's degree or a master's degree for your experience. So I think we are going to see a lot more of that happening. And mm -hmm. if once that, and maybe an online course and, you know, face-to-face. -face. And once, once you're trying to do this, the ability to bring those things together and verify them becomes essential because no, nobody is going to want to verify 15 different pieces of paper from 15 different institutions and trying to make sense of all of that. When, when that is digital, it just becomes much easier to do. And for me also, it's very um, appealing uh, on this future that you can show credentials of things or skills that makes sense in the real world for employment, for example, that you're rather than a university, than a university <laughs> diploma. That uh, is a, a way of maybe I'm, I'm shooting my foot, uh, but uh, good that a, we both work at a university. Yes, uh, but maybe I will not work in a university in, uh, in, in <laughs> ten years. I don't know. Well, maybe arriving home. Uh, but the the idea that uh, people can get. Uh, a job uh, uh, or um, can get, yes, or some responsibility because they can show that they are capable of doing something without having a di university diploma is very appealing to me. And the possibility also that what you have learned uh, either in an online course, a bootcamp or a peer-to-peer -peer university learning circle, and that you can take that not only on a job, but also in a university and get credit, I think that that, that future is very appealing. Also, that there's no line dividing the uh, formal and non-formal or informal or non-structural, whatever you want. Formal. Super formal uh, way of learning. Uh, and it becomes a real marketplace of learning. Uh, all things uh, uh, are accessible for, for you. It's very appealing. Or maybe a bazaar of learning a to bazaar. use the open source. You know, the bazaar versus the cathedral uh, uh -huh. okay. uh, article by Eric Raymond, which is one of the kind of fundamental open source um, articles. Because I like bazaar because it's a little messier. Messier. Um, whereas market is, at least in the US, market you immediately think uh, corporations, right? And mm -hmm. and I actually, I, I'm curious in your thoughts on this. Um, I think we both got into digital learning with uh, kind of the idea that it would increase opportunities, lower costs, make the experience better, you know, kind of make the make education better as a whole for more people. Mm -hmm. And the the research often shows that introducing technology, especially in education, has generally benefited those who were already doing fine. So like the divide in a way is getting even bigger because now if I have a good degree, and I am privileged, I can now take these MOOCs and I'm getting new skills and the employers are looking for those skills. So the people who aren't able to do this are falling further and further behind. Um, so that is one thing that worries me um, about our new effort. You know, how do we make sure that this really benefits everyone? And how do we make sure that it's not entirely driven by the market of what employers want because i think there's also there's some there's something magical in education that we can't explain and that we we should feel more confident about not being able to explain whereas our universities are constantly being asked by employers give us those skills demonstrate you know your, your ability and I, I well maybe you disagree on this but i, I think um and actually the media labs Three indicators for like that we use for evaluation are uh, uniqueness, 
impact and magic. And, and magic is the thing you can't explain, but there's something around the university or education or spending time with other people that's like less directed, less instrumental, less functional, that makes you a different person. And I don't want to lose that in a way. And, and maybe that's a luxury, but there is, maybe we should, we should not forget to create more of that luxury for more people if we make everything more efficient. Yes. I, I disagree a little bit with um, uh, one part of what you said, uh, this idea that online learning doesn't work or, or only works for the people that are privileged. I think that um, more self-directed online learning, uh, it's uh, more directed to privileged people that already have um, some education or higher education and that are uh, self-directed learners. Yeah. That, how uh, learn how to learn but uh, if you give them more uh, support in the form of tutoring or other kind of things then you have some successful cases yeah. at least that i'm aware of and uh, yeah. um, in africa in india maybe even in the united yeah. kingdom with the british open university in in, in, in latin america also yeah. uh, so maybe the the magic there is how we fill the gap of uh, uh, learning how to learn so that everyone can have more access to learning. Yeah, and but I think this is actually a great example, um, and I, I completely agree with you. Um, but if you look at where the investment is going in online learning, it's not going into providing tutoring and more support for people who are struggling. It's going into providing professional development for executives or data scientists, or like that's really where the money is going, that's where the attention is going, and that's where the, where the energy is. And um, the, in a way, um, the people who would benefit much more, like we, you know, we should be building different kinds of tools, we should be investing in more tutoring, we should be, those things are, um, there isn't quite as much interest by the market and then if you let this be driven by the market, you're not going to put your money into those fields. You're going to put it into data science and you know those other things. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, so I totally agree with you. It's not that technology will always exacerbate the difference. I mean, that's why I still work in technology because I haven't given up the hope mm -hmm. that you know it can increase opportunities. But we have to be intentional, and it's it's really how we design it, how we implement it. You know, we, if we hold on to those values, then technology can be amazing. But if we let the market drive it too much, sometimes it gets pushed into other directions. Sure. So you uh, recently uh, acquired a batch, a new batch, uh, the, the father batch, uh, yeah, 11 weeks ago. Tomorrow, 11 weeks. Tomorrow, yeah. 11 and that's weeks. actually, I think that's the best batch I've gotten so far. Um, <laughs> it's not on the blockchain yet, but uh, it's uh, real life. It's not on the blockchain yet. Yeah, no, it turns out the best things are in real life. No, um, sitting here with you face to face is, is great. We've known each other for so many years, but uh, it's the personal connections. And um, I try not to be too, because uh, I work in education broadly, I try not to be too, um, what's the right word? Uh, professional about having a child basically like I, I want you know I don't want to be too I don't want to get too involved in thinking about the education I want her to just kind of mess around I mean maybe that is the right thing but maybe that is the right approach that, that is the research that I guess appeals to me but um, you know I feel like uh, when I see especially in the US the push of the education system to to train children at a younger and younger age is really um, frightening to me here. And so I, I love children that are wild and that, are, that make mistakes and that are messy. And so I'm hoping that I can, I can create a space for my daughter to be, you know, wild and messy and, and uh, hit her head and, you know, not too hard, but a little bit and cause trouble. And, uh, but it's been really amazing. Like I have to say, I'm so tired right now because I never sleep. But uh, when when that person smiles at you, it's just, it's a very special connection. And it's nice that you have this uh, human touch in most of your work uh, that you have been doing. 
like um, peer-to-peer learning, always thinking on people and the connection and the social connections of people. That, uh, going back to your uh, recently acquired batch as a father, uh, how do you think, or what opportunities do you think that your daughter should have when she's, let's say, graduating from high school in 18 years or something like that? What would you like uh, for her I, as opportunities? I would hope uh, that she has the extreme privilege to um, do things that might go wrong and that she could fail at things and that she would be safe to do this. I don't think uh, everyone has that opportunity. Um, I would hope that she can be she has the luxury of being exposed and connecting with people from many different backgrounds and many different places, and that she gets to see them and experience them. Um, and uh, that uh, she can be whoever, whoever she is, really. Um, so it will be nice to work so that it's not a luxury, a privilege. It's, uh, it's more democratized these opportunities of failing and connecting and... Yeah, I mean, this is a... You're actually making me a little emotional about this, but, um, you know, I think there's um, so much inequality in the world right now. And uh, we are... Um, she's very fortunate that she's, you know, by no uh, doing of her own, that she is born into a place where it's like, it's peaceful, we have resources, uh, um, you know, she ha she's going to have access to a lot of things that other people don't. Um, and I'm worried that the world will become less stable. I'm worried that the world with climate change and conflict, and so I'm worried about the world, you know, that the things I can't control, the little things I can control, you know, I, the, the best we can do is uh, to create space and, and make that space as, as big as possible and as safe as necessary, but not safe. Um, and if you can navigate that, I think as a parent, where you're always afraid, of course, it, to step back and let go and, and kind of, you know, uh, set this person free in a way, I think that would be great. Very nice. I, um, you, you, you made me think a lot uh, on this uh, talk, Philip. And I expect that uh, people that are hearing us are enjoying also. Uh, do you want uh, to... Two old guys talking about the, guys the internet. About the, <laughs> the, uh, the US that, uh, groups. Uh, do you want to uh, give some um, uh, leads to people uh, to learn more about your work, uh, a URL or something? Um, yeah, I mean, peer-to-peer -peer university is easy. It's p2pu.org. Or if you search for peer-to-peer -peer university... Um, there's actually one project that I'm very excited about that we didn't talk so much about. It's okay. called PLIX. Okay. Uh, it's the Public Library Innovation Exchange. Um, based on this work with Peer2P University, I became very interested in public libraries as an institution, as a platform for education. And we are, the Media Lab is partnering with public libraries to create STEM learning opportunities. Uh, mostly for um, younger learners, but we're pushing it. We're trying to expand more to adults, um, but it's around building things and making things and discovering technology. So clicks, if you have a public library in your neighborhood um, that wants to get involved with clicks, uh, you know, we can send you a kit or you can use the materials on our website. That would be great. And then um, from everywhere in the world, everywhere in the world. Okay. Um, I mean, sending kits to everyone in the world might, might get tricky, uh, but uh, the kits also are uh, cheap. So we give the whole list and maybe for less than 30 or $40, you can just buy the things, mm -hmm. you know, locally. Um, and then uh, the digital credentials project, um, I think the best URL right now is digitalcredentials.mit.edu. Um, and uh, there's a contact form if anyone is interested in getting involved there, or they should email you. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then uh, they can get involved that way. So I think those are probably the three. The, the three leads. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Philip, for, for your time. I know that it's getting late and you got to go home for your second job or your first job. Also. 
Yeah, I'm actually going out, and I, I have to go. I'm going out for dinner with my uh, partner because this is the first time in 11 weeks that we are able to meet for dinner because okay. the parents-in-law are looking after the baby. So That's it's a, romantic this is a very okay. happy, uh, perfect moment for this conversation. And thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you, Philippe. Okay, thank you. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producer, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.